Welcome to episode three of the Yellow Ladybugs podcast series four, supporting autistic girls and gender diverse students at school and beyond. This podcast series is brought to you by the Victorian Department of Education and Training. Join us for this fantastic two-part conversation about reframing behavior, hosted by Katie Coolis and Natasha Stahili, who speak with two internationally renowned experts, Mona Dalahook and Dr. Ross Green, who are both shifting the lens on this topic. Join us in learning how we can work with our young people to understand their unmet needs and address their need for safety. Please note, this panel does contain references to suicide, self-harm, mental health, eating disorders, depression, and bullying. So let's get underway with episode three. In the spirit of reconciliation, Yellow Ladybugs acknowledges the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea, and community. We pay our respects to their elders past and present and extend their respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples today. Katie Kulas and Natasha Stahili from Yellow Ladybugs and joining us today as we continue in our mission to reframe our understanding of behaviour is Dr Mona Delahook. We're actually pinching ourselves that this is happening when we introduced the topic of reframing behaviour in our first conference. We chose a quote from Mona to set the scene, which was, when you see a behaviour that is problematic or confusing, the first question we should ask isn't how do we get rid of it, but rather what is this telling us about the child? And we have done so much in this space since then, but right now it's incredible to be going straight to the source of so much wisdom. Mona Delahook is an absolute trailblazer in shifting our understanding of behaviour. She is an internationally renowned child psychologist who aims to reduce suffering and increase resilience for children and families. Her paradigm-shifting model offers a new way of understanding emotional and behavioural challenges, incorporating the latest neuroscience research to support relationships. As well as her incredible online presence, she is the best-selling author of two groundbreaking books, Beyond Behaviours and Brain-Body Parenting. She is also committed to challenging our education systems to update their practices from focusing on behaviour to promoting relational safety, which is another reason why we are very excited to have her here today. Welcome, Mona. Thank you so much. What a lovely introduction. I'm so happy (laughs) to be here. Yeah, we are so grateful you're here today as well. We're really appreciative and I'm sure our audience is too. So Mona, we'll jump straight into questions. You're such a tremendous ally with an incredible reputation, not just for translating neuroscience into something that everyone can understand, but for the compassion and empathy you bring. And we are so honoured, as we said, to have you here today. Can you start by summarising your approach towards behaviour, specifically why we need to look beyond behaviours and systems of securing compliance and instead towards supporting a child's body-based and emotional needs? Well, um, that is the most important question that I was was asking many years ago when I realised after studying... um, a lot of different things, including the brain and the body and neuroscience and and development was to view behaviors as just the tip of the iceberg. So if you imagine an iceberg, um, the the tip is what you see, but underneath the waterline hidden below are all these things that contribute to behaviors. So what I found was our, our education system really pretty much across the world is was looking at behaviors as the target, like just tip of, tip of the iceberg. But instead, with when we think about viewing them as the signal of something very important, um, millions of things that are happening invisibly inside of children and adults and teenagers, then we have a whole new way, um, a more compassionate way, but also a more holistic way to understand our fellow humans. Yes, absolutely. And I really love that you talked about what is going on invisibly inside um, the body because 
or inside mm-hmm. the person because that is what we're all about, um, really, really mm-hmm. looking at those hidden needs, what's going on inside. Um, so with that lovely intro, I think we'll, we're, we'll um, really now focus in on our particular community of autistic girls and young people who, as I've just said, their challenges are often less obvious and their needs are more hidden. So these are our ladybugs who are internalising their behaviour, who aren't necessarily outwardly disruptive. Um, they've been calm, compliant, apparently regulated throughout the school day, but when they get home, they either go into meltdown or shut down. And over time, we know that has a profound impact. So what is going on here? And what do both teachers and parents need to understand about this? Hmm. Well, I appreciate the question because I think it's so important um, to understand that many of our autistic girls and many children, first of all, are feeling very misunderstood and realizing that they may be acting in ways or or moving their bodies in ways or do, or doing something that isn't um accepted as 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 something that's valued and so i'll just say off the bat that i think um this is a guess but based on my experience we have a lot of individuals who are masking um, which means they're kind of pretending to uh, act a certain way or maybe feeling really tense inside or or anxious or shaky um, or or just um, what, what I use to describe our autonomic nervous system is colors. So, you know, and, and again, everyone is different in how they experience sensations, but in that, um, in that, the red, blue, and green idea when we have our different nervous systems, I think that 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 vulnerable feeling uncomfortable inside and looking like you might be okay on the outside. So the teacher might say, oh, they're doing, they're doing fine. And they may be compliant, but inside very hypervigilant. We call that the combo zone where you've got a mix of feeling kind of anxious on the inside, but on the outside, you may be looking a little shut down or a little uh, overly compliant. So I'm concerned about our students who who suffer kind of silently. Um, and I, I love that you are bringing this to our attention. Thank you, Mona. Um, that is such a, a really great explanation and you painted the picture beautifully because many of our ladybugs are misunderstood. They are often overlooked because they're not presenting as any distress, but it's all under the surface, as you said. And yeah. they get and parents get told all the time, they're fine. But you talked about that hypervigilance and that is just such a constant theme for our ladybugs and it, it impacts it a lot, which... I guess narrows us down to the next question because we'd like to maybe dig a bit deeper here and we've got two particularly challenging and distressing situations that arise within our community and the first of this is something that unfortunately is too common but we well understood sorry not at all well understood is that when our neurodivergent young people start displaying more internalized behaviors of concern Um, Mm -hmm. including self-harm or suicidal ideation or restricted eating. This comes to the forefront when our ladybugs hit the teen and tween years. So often after the years of masking, like we've just described, and not having their hidden needs met, what's your advice for families on how to best support their loved ones who might be experiencing these difficult things? Yes. And we can think about the the layers um and the loading that 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 you may feel as a a teenager or an adolescent um we i talk about the body budget which is um kind of a, a way to think about uh a complex term called allostasis but we all have body budgets and our body budgets get withdrawals and deposits every day And so if we think about our neurodivergent youth, particularly those who are kind of not supported in a way that feels safe and that builds our self-confidence, those withdrawals can be happening 
a lot over the days, over the years. And as you as you just said, and as I mentioned before, the cost of masking is very heavy on the body budget. So I guess the first thing I would say is is not to the parents, but to our to our our society in general, our culture needs to have a greater level of acceptance of neurodivergency, neurodivergent behaviors, neurodivergent speech, so that we can start to help others feel safe when they're masking to know that they don't have to be. You can be who you are and be proud of it. And our differences can make us um, can make us stronger rather than have us go underground. So part of what I want the message to our education system and to our to our our society is that we really need to open our eyes and not judge behaviors that are different as being worse. And that's going to help our little yellow ladybugs that are growing up right now to feel safe and and cozy at their schools and in their in their world as they are. So for parents um and you know to and support and carers and supporters I think what we need to do is to try to sensitively open up discussions with our with with our daughters with our children about what it's like to be you and um to allow this sense of of um disclosure and vulnerability to be able to be talked about because what you can what you can verbalize or write down it could be a painting it doesn't have to be words but what you can express is going to be less likely to to fester inside and make you feel bad about yourself. So open communication, um, parents taking carers taking really good care of their own body budget so that you can feel like you can take a walk or that you can cook, bake together or cook a meal and just have an open place where the child or the teenager or young adult can um feel safe to talk about what it's like to be them as a buffer to those harmful feelings that start to cause us to feel depressed or even um worse uh to self-harm so i would say um a close connection and then of course finding a, a communities of support so whether that's a neurodivergent friendly therapist or or counselor um, or group that you get together, like like what you're doing really to help move the needle. Thank you so much. That is a really beautiful, compassionate response to a very difficult question. And mm-hmm. you're actually you're echoing what we hear from autistic adults who we talk to a lot um, as an autistic-led community who talk directly about what it's like to grow up feeling broken and wrong mm-hmm. and to have spent your early years trying to please people and do things right and where that leaves you when you're an adult. And um, I really, that acceptance about neurodiversity and neurodivergence and all of these things that, you know, they say if we had these things when we were younger, it would have made such a difference to how I feel now as an adult. So you've really, you've echoed that beautifully and I think you, you've you've talked about the loading on our young people. That really, really resonates with us. And again, we talk to a lot of autistic teens and they say that. They talk about that. And being given the opportunity to talk about it is, is amazing. And we need the rest of the world to listen. So thank you yeah. very, very much for that. Um, we're going to mm. cover another angle now, which again is something which um, happens a lot in our community. And um, that is to discuss the topic of school refusal, or as we prefer Mm. to say, school can't. And this is a really hot topic in Australian schools right now, as it is around the world. Um, And it requires a far more nuanced approach than simply saying that parents need to apply tough love to get their kids to school. So what is your advice for families who are in this situation right now? And what do our schools need to know about what's going on here? Hmm. It's such a good question. And I I love the school can't rather than school refusal, because right there, 
school refusal has a um, kind of disordered tone to it. Like there's something maybe wrong with the child for refusing to go to school. And and also implicit blame, I think. Um, and, and oftentimes parents are told that they are supporting that and that they have to just, like you said, have have more be more strong about it or have some consistent discipline or consequences which really i understand from a from looking at it at the old paradigm where behaviors are viewed as the target but when we really look below we truly understand that at the basis of school refusal is a body and brain that is not feeling safe at school. And so the what I would love teachers to know and parents to know too, that when a human doesn't feel safe in a setting, the tough love approach is gonna make them feel less safe and less seen. So what we wanna remember is something called co-regulation, meaning a, a warm, loving, or at least engaging attuned adult can work with the child at school or the student or the teenager to help them feel partnered with safe and secure. And um, I write about stories where, you know, this approach is taken and, you know, sometimes it takes a few weeks, but as Ross Green says, children do well when they can or if they can. And I agree. And when they can't, there's a reason. And the reason isn't to be stubborn or to be non-compliant. The reason um, is way deeper than that. And, and if we think about it truly, especially for our neurodiversion children, a simple task at school, such as a transition, or a change in plans, which happens all the time, could be so frightening and so destabilizing that simply a school day can feel overwhelming. And this is what we need to address to shift the environment, not to blame the student. Yes, absolutely. Shift the environment, not blame the student. We are 100% on board. And you said it and I was like, aha, when you said <laughs> body and brain is not safe. You know, we need to make sure that with deeper look and absolutely on board with you. Thank you for yeah. sharing that message. Yeah. And, I, guess, and um, I wanted to add, I just think yes. one thing for parents yes. who are listening, I definitely don't want parents to think that um, they are doing anything to help to, to contribute to their child not feeling safe. So this this neuroception, this this subconscious detection of threat and safety is is very mysterious. And I just want parents to know, no blame, no shame. You are doing the best job you can. So this isn't something that's caused by parents, because I think that even in the field of mental health and in, in psychology, there's this long history of blaming and shaming parents. Yeah. Um, so you know, true. so true. So we true. in Australia recently with someone saying that parents need to just use tough love. No, let's stop blaming and shaming. And yes. even and teachers who are doing their best as well on an, like you said, on a neuroception level, it's, it, so com complicated and we yes. just need to look deeper at that and I yeah. just so powerful thank you so much for that and sticking with the school setting we have such an amazing community of teachers and educators watching this who are genuinely trying to make a change in their classroom mm. but are bound by such an often inflexible system that is largely still adhering to old methods of behaviour me management. And we know you're such an advocate for systemic change. But today we'd love to put the power directly into the hands of our teachers who are listening at home. What advice do you have for them and how they can maybe introduce neuroscience-based approach towards behaviour in their classroom? And how can we support our teachers to bring about change from like the ground up? What's your thoughts on that? Mm. Well, I think it's amazing that there are teachers in this community who'll be listening to all your wonderful speakers. And um, so first of all, I would just say that for many teachers, you're in an uphill battle. Teachers in the US, in Australia, in the UK, in Western Europe. I mean, 
you are in an uphill battle because the training that you get is based on behavior science. So my first thing to say to teachers is our best tool is self-compassion. Just have so much compassion because what you've been trained with and what our culture generally views as, you know, the best way to have a controlled classroom is to have a very authoritative and controlling teacher is really in our cultural DNA. So understand that what we're talking about is a new paradigm. So again, a lot of compassion for, wow, okay, um, my, you know, I'm in a district or I have a, a school head or principal who, who wouldn't understand this maybe, but all you really need is one other person in a school who you can talk to about this and who may, you may want to start with a simple article. Um, I have, I can put in your, in your notes, some simple articles about the lens shift in a classroom or in a school that, that talked about um, just one small way to shift how we're looking at a child's behavior, for example, um, can really make the difference. So I think one maybe piece of advice I would give is give yourself permission to not view a challenging behavior as something that you need to consequence or punish. Give yourself permission to see a behavior as a stress response. And if you have neurodivergent or behaviorally challenged or developmentally um developmentally different rates of development in the children you work in the students you work with, which is probably all teachers um, to understand that the cost of being in that sensory environment of a classroom is going to be different for each and every student. And the cost is going to be higher for some students. And we believe that the cost for our neurodivergent and autistic students is higher due to those differences in processing sensory information. So I just said a mouthful, but I I guess I just wanted to, to explain that there's so much more to behaviors and that there are really good reasons for students moving their bodies and their mouths the way they, they are. It's really um, an indication of their needing more accommodations more warmth, more acceptance, and uh, just a new lens. Yeah, mm. <laughs> I love that. Mm-hmm. And it's just it's just powerful, I think, just to know that, just mm. to, and as you say, to mm-hmm. give yourself permission to, to look at um, what's going on with that behaviour you're seeing, to look at it differently and understand that as a, it's a stress response, as you say, and that's something we are... Um, very, very passionately advocating for and yellow ladybugs. We're very lucky we get to work with our local Department of Education on a regular basis and we are we are really, really pushing this message because it makes such a difference. And as parents, we see that with our own kids um, when, when they find that teacher who looks at them with compassion and connection and all of those things. So um, it can be done. And I think... It's okay to if you've not understood that before as a teacher. It's it's mm. absolutely fine to learn. We all evolve and learn. So, um, yeah. And thank on, you. Thank you. And on that note, that actually follows us, brings us to our next question really nicely. And um, you do you talk so passionately about the paradigm shift and understanding behaviour and we, and paradigm shift lens shift. We know this is where we can make the most impact. And we really want to help people move forwards with their approach towards behavior and to evolve their thinking. Um, as the saying goes, when we know better, we do better. Um, but what is your advice for parents or educators or even health professionals who are still a bit stuck, perhaps, and holding on to those old compliance-based methods, reward and consequence systems, the way they were brought up, the way they were trained? We get that. So how do we move on from yeah. How do we own our mistakes? And there's a lovely term at the moment, moving from rupture to repair. So would love your thoughts on that. Mm. I love the way you frame the questions there. You know, they, these are great questions. And I'm so grateful that you're having an impact. Um, I know are, are beyond your education system, but that educators are listening to this beautiful conversation, sometimes for the first time. 
So I will continue the theme of compassion to say that many of us weren't raised this way, right? Many educators may not have it in the, what we call the procedural memory, because we, our brain is a predictive machine and we kind of, it goes on its own based on our past experiences. So the first thing I'd say is if these principles uh, sound kind of unusual or, or, um, you know, new, that that's okay. Allow that. You don't have to change everything. Um, but just know that you're not alone and that in neuroscience, um, this information is just percolating into our other systems. And, and there's a, a very strong um, lobby and a lot of money across the world in behavioral technologies. So I say that as a neutral statement only because I want teachers to know that um, when there are a lot of finances involved and organizations that put on trainings for teachers, the it's a multi-billion dollar business. And um, I think we I just we just need to put that out there to understand that sometimes when businesses are that strong, it's going to take a while for the people, the, you know, the, the paradigm shifters that, as I call them, the compassionate disruptors that say, you know what, this is not really serving our children. Look at the rates of anxiety and depression in autistic young adults and teenagers. They are so high. And um, I was a speaker at a, at the, um, neurodivergent neuro uh the Stanford University it's an important university in California the Stanford University neuro diversity summit and we did a panel on neurodivergence and trauma and um on the I was a panel as a therapist but my co-panelist who is amazing um and autist an autistic speech and language therapist talked about the cost of being in school that was again going back to feeling like you are you don't fit in so what i would say to teachers is your best teachers are autistic people and i love yellow ladybugs and i love that you guys are bringing this into our conversation um, it's you can you can read the blogs and and hear what our students are begging for and that is um please understand the stress load that our neurodivergent students are carrying just to stay in the game and without sufficient accommodations in that environment and that could be anything from um having the walls have have uh some padding that that absorb some of the sounds. It, it could be, again, going back to compassion and always giving the most generous interpretation of a behavior rather than viewing it through the lens of compliance. Um, small things and big things. Um, yeah. My gosh, so spot on, Mona. And the I love how you keep on referring back to the cost, the cost of being at school, it's such a powerful way to frame it and understand it. And I, I would say from our specific community being autistic girls, the cost is so heavy because of all those unmet needs throughout the primary or early school years of not being understood and not being, you know, looking fine and masking. And it, this is why we're seeing such a huge cost in the 12, 13, 14, 15 year age bracket and the link to mental health. And, you know, yeah. those, those teachers who are still using the old approaches that they think might work. I love how you said, how is this actually serving our children? And that's mm. something to question. Like if you're trying something and it's not working, yes. why continue down that path? So thank you so much for that mm. beautiful, um, great answer. So we're going mm. to ask you to speak directly to two very important groups within our community. Mm. So first, to our parents and especially those who are exhausted, burnt mm. out, 
often deeply distressed by their children's struggles. You know, I'm an autistic parent and I've got neurodivergent children and it's a lot. And we know that co-regulation is so important and it's also really, really hard when we are also all of those things that I mentioned above. What would you say to these parents? First of all, <laughs> as I, I've just, this, the thought of the burdens and the responsibility of being a parent and the, I guess I'll use the cost of not feeling that your child may be treasured and feeling safe outside in the world is one of the heaviest costs a parent can bear. So for parents, so much love and compassion I'm extending to you. And please, please take good care of your body budgets. I know it might feel like there's no energy left at the end of the day because the extra activities and um, and and follow up and in it that you are doing is exhausting in and of itself. Mm. But um, I will say that you are the most important co-regulator, meaning the most important person that will stabilize your child's nervous system, just as all parents are. So you are the most important tool in your tool chest. Take good care of yourself. Find support when you can from other parents um, and look for uh, a now, luckily, that we have an, a, you know, large online communities of support for parents. So I would say look for your community. Look for that support. Take good care of yourself. Have regular physical checkups because um, some studies are suggesting that uh, parents uh, of children with special needs have um, additional um, inflammation in their body. It's, you know, I'm very holistic. So I'm thinking that that stress is in our culture, but our, we're viewing our children have different stress loads and that's also stressful to the parents. So take really good care of yourself. Yeah, well, yeah, absolutely beautiful. Thank you for that. And I know I've heard you talk before about as parents, we can actually look to our own interoceptive awareness as well. And, yeah. you know, as, as parents of neurodivergent children, a lot of us know about interoception now, but it's that next step to take it to yourself and mm. to understand what's happening inside mm. your body. And when yeah. that heart is racing and all those hormones are racing around, it's 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 grounding just to be aware of that even, I think. Good point. That's a great point. And if you can't, <laughs> if you can't put a word to it, that's okay. Because sometimes all you feel is like you might feel tingles inside or or you might feel like um, your your body is going to sleep, whatever, it doesn't matter what you can become aware of. Anything is useful. Mm -hmm. Any kind of awareness. Um, it doesn't have to be an emotion. It could be a sensation because that is connecting to your body and that's healthy for us. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Yes. So another, another group would love you to speak to is actually to our young people who face mm -hmm. so many barriers to getting the understanding support and accommodations they need and we know you believe how important it is to give our children access to their own voice agency autonomy and to do so from a place of curiosity and empathy so what is your message to any of our young people who are watching today hmm. well I'd like to say that I believe our differences um, are what make us each brilliant, not how alike we are. And I know you're living in spaces in a, in a culture that doesn't always see differences in how you maybe uh, things you you're interested in or the way you move your body or some of those some of those things that make you beautifully unique and a miracle may not always be appreciated, but I want you to know that there are people in the world who appreciate that and there will be more and more. So find your people, find communities, find friends who get you, and then find safe adults that you can talk to 
about what it's like sometimes to um, not feel comfortable just being who you are um, and uh, know that you may feel lonely sometimes, but know that there you're really not alone. There are so many people in the world and in your family and in your community who love you. Beautiful. That is such a nice way to uh, finish off that question because that's spot on. Feeling alone is such a big reason why so many of our community feel, you know, so empty, so disconnected from their, their community and the trauma they've had to go through feeling that as young people. And find your people, such a great message. And um, thank you for that beautiful, kind-hearted response. And we hope many ladybugs hear that from adults and children alike, hear that around the world. Um, mm. I've got a bonus question for you if you've got a couple more minutes. Um, yeah. <laughs> um, so even with the most supportive home environments of ones that can use curiosity and empathy and a school, school environment that already undertakes a lot of the strategies that we're suggesting here today, there can be still children who experience distress um, and complex uh, challenging behaviours of concern. Um, yeah. They might go down what's known as conduct disorder or they might get labelled with um, words such as being sociopathic. Is there any advice for families who are navigating that um, that direction with their older teens because we know we can shift things like using empathy and curiosity, but what happens when that's not working or we're not seeing, even if the environment's right, what's your advice there? Yeah, a, a very good question. And, you know, the word that comes to my mind is complexity because as we age um, and if, and in um, our in our range of neurodivergency, there are you know the pathways to self regulation, which which allow people to have more control over their emotions, their behaviors, um, are are complex. So I would say first of all, if you if you are, if you're a teacher or a parent and you see that self-regulation, that is this um, ability to, to have calmness in your body um, and you have people who are looking defiant or are rising to the level of, of having others think that they have a DSM diagnosis like oppositional defiant disorder or conduct disorders, um, I usually like to think big picture and have a team, a, a supportive team. Uh, the types of therapist uh, training that can be useful uh, are ones that align with the DIR uh, philosophy. And like, there's a little bit of controversy on, on that, but uh, it's 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 for icdl.com um it's a group it has it's it's um director is autistic it's very neurodivergent friendly and they have groups of of therapists consultants around the globe who can help guide you to create a team to see why that student why that teenager is beginning to have such difficulty with those behaviors. So I'd say find a supportive team mm -hmm. to help you look at all the angles that mm -hmm. will help you get self-regulation more on board and understand that the window for self-regulation never closes. So if you have a 17 or 18 year old who is really struggling, that is that doesn't mean that there aren't solutions that are going to work. We just have to think complexly about complex that's a really, thank you so much, because I know a lot of families who are struggling that say we are trying all these approaches and yeah. it's still not enough. And I think the missing piece is what you explain. It needs a complex solution of people who understand it at that level. And we'll make sure we have those resources or links to what you described. Great. That would be really helpful. Yeah, I think that will help families feel like it's not that you're doing something wrong, because even 
as a, a psychologist with many years of training, um, I for 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 um, many of of the um, clients we work with, it's we have a, I I rely on my team. There may be an an OT for sensory processing, a beautiful developmental pediatrician, and um, you know a, a speech and language person. There there may be and then an educator. So mm-hmm. think complexly and know that it's not it's not you. It's just that you haven't found the right combination yeah. yet. You are, your insights are just so incredible for our community and we're so grateful. Um, mm-hmm. we've, we've run out of questions. You've done such a great job of answering them all so succinctly. So thank you so much from the bottom of our heart and for being such an incredible ally for neurodivergent people around the world and our families. Um, thank you so much. Yeah, we're really excited to share this. It's going to go far and wide. Um, yeah, mm-hmm. we're making the change. It's exciting. Thank you, Mona so much it's so exciting it is my great pleasure and honor thanks so much for having me hi ron we're katie coolis and natasha stahili from yellow ladybugs and joining us today is dr ross green Dr. Ross Green is a best-selling author and internationally renowned clinical psychologist. He is the originator of collaborative and proactive solutions approach towards behavior, in other words, the CPS model, and his influential work is widely known throughout the world, and you may know him from his game-changing nonprofit organization, Lives in the Balance, and his books including The Explosive Child, Raising Humans, and Lost at School. Dr. Green is already a household name due to his paradigm-shifting approach to supporting children with challenging behaviours. Today, we are excited to really focus in on supporting our particular community of autistic young people whose challenges are perhaps less obvious and whose unmet needs are more hidden. We're going to ask Dr. Green to take us on this journey with advice for parents and teachers on how to step away from focusing on changing behaviour and instead to work proactively with our young people to understand their unmet needs and to address or solve these problems, all with a dose of curiosity and empathy and not a reward chart or punishment in sight. So Dr. Green is a tremendous ally for our community and we are so honoured to have you here today. Dr. Green, welcome. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. Thank you so much. So let's jump straight into it. We're first going to cover up the key philosophy that underpins your work. And just briefly, if you can summarize your approach and explain the lens shift away from behavior modification that informs this approach. Well, uh, the mentality of the model is kids do well if they can. The belief that if this kid could do well, they would do well. But it also acknowledges that doing well is a subjective thing. And that doing well means something different for each kid. And that has to be defined differently for each kid. Meaning um, we don't have the exact same expectations for every kid because every kid is different. So all that's good, right? The reason many people feel that kids do well if they can is a bit earth shattering is because of an alternative philosophy that's been quite popular for a very long time called kids do well if they wanna. Two very different philosophies that are going to take you in two completely different directions. If you have a kids do well if they wanna mentality and you have a kid who's not doing well, then you're probably going to be pointed toward interventions aimed at making a kid want to do well, namely rewarding and punishing. And what are you rewarding and punishing? behavior. Um, A big difference between the CPS model and many other modalities is that we aren't focused on the behavior and we aren't focused on modifying it. We are focused instead on the problems that are causing that behavior and solving them. The difference here is not just in terms of what outcomes you're looking at, but what are you focused on as you're working with a kid? Um, In CPS, we're not focused on the behavior. We simply view the concerning behavior as the signal, the fever, the means by which the kid is communicating. We've all heard the cliche, behavior is communication. What is concerning behavior communicating? 
that there's an expectation the kid is having difficulty meeting. And many people know this already, but we refer to those expectations the kid is having difficulty meeting as unsolved problems. Now I'll shut up for a few minutes. <laughs> well, we actually will jump into our next question. Yeah, look, honestly, you, it's, it's music to our ears to hear you say that. And I think um, putting the child's well-being at the centre of what is a positive outcome is, is what this is all about. So at Yellow Ladybugs, we have a particular focus on autistic girls and gender diverse young people um, whose needs are often very hidden. And so we would, we would love to hear you talk a little bit more specifically about the hidden needs or the unmet needs that our young people and our community are experiencing. And just a quick sort of context, these are the children who often internalise their behaviour and who aren't necessarily outwardly disruptive. We're talking about young people who've been calm, compliant, apparently regulated throughout their school day. In fact, their teacher says they're fine, but then they come home and fall into a heap. They let it all out, yelling, swearing, moody and aggressive, or they retreat and become withdrawn, nonverbal or frozen. On the surface, this looks like disrespectful, rude, defiant behaviour or avoidance or sulking. But let's look deeper. What might be going on for the student at school? What could some of their unmet needs be? So based on your, your experience, how can we use the CPS model to address these needs or, as you would put it, these unsolved problems? Well, here's what's interesting about your question. Um, yes, I'm hearing that the child you were describing looks angelic at school, but I'm also hearing that the kid um, decompensates when they get home. So the first thing we should say is that a very popular a very popular explanation for that scenario is that the folks at school have their act together and the folks at home don't. So let's not go there, right? But it's popular, just doesn't mean that it's true. Um, but the, what you described about what the kid was looking like at home once they got there tells us that hidden may not be the best word to use because what you were describing doesn't sound hidden at all to me. It sounds like a kid we would be very concerned about, a kid who is communicating through their concerning behavior, whether it is disruptive, aggressive, or more subdued, they're still communicating to us that something ain't right. We still have to figure out what ain't right. Um, there are many kids who have unsolved problems at school, but hold it together at school, and then decompensate when they get home. So just because the kid is decompensating when they get home, doesn't mean that what they are communicating to us when they get home is specific to the home environment. Now notice what I haven't, the term I haven't been using is unmet needs. Now, that's not because I'm allergic to the concept of unmet needs. I'm sure that we all have unmet needs and I've worked with many kids who had unmet needs. Two things about that though. I find that unmet needs are more nebulous, more hypothetical more um, subject to adult conjecture. I find that unsolved problems are much more specific and therefore easier to identify and therefore easier to work on. But here's point number two. So I, I tend to talk about unsolved problems, not unmet needs, just because of the specificity issue. Um, the other thing is this, I was doing a talk last week, where was I in wherever I was, um, and people are saying, what about the kids' unmet needs? And I said, what do you mean when you say unmet needs? And they were saying things like, the kid didn't get a good night's sleep the night before, or the kid is coming to school hungry. Uh, well, those are actually unmet needs we can do something about. But life got more interesting when I started hearing that people felt that those unmet needs had to be met before we could start working on a kid's unsolved problems. That I do not agree with. Um, when I was seeing that people were putting the unmet needs so front and center, very empathic, by the way, very caring, no, nope, certainly no judgmental anything there. 
But the unmet need was so front and center that it's almost like they couldn't see the unsolved problems because they were so caught up in the unmet needs. So once again, I'm not allergic to unmet needs, not um, criticizing anything about unmet needs, just saying it shouldn't keep us from working on unsolved problems, which are much more specific anyways. Yeah, absolutely. Love your take on that because we do hear a lot about unmet needs um, and I really like how you've bridged that gap into understanding the unsolved problems there. Maybe we can dig a little deeper and have this conversation around the unsolved problems, especially in our community where there's particularly challenging and distressing situations that often arise in our families and the first of these, as an example, is parents often come to us and share that their young person is displaying internalised behaviours of concern, including self-harm, suicidal ideation, restricted eating. Um, what's your thoughts there um, in those situations? No different than my thoughts with any other concerning behaviours. Um, obviously, self-harm is more serious than crying. Um, self-injured, um, restricted eating could end up being more serious than pouting or withdrawing. Um, and not that any of those, all of those are signals, right? So I don't change my approach dramatically depending on the signal. A signal is a signal, especially in terms of what it communicates. What signals communicate is something ain't right. There's an expectation a kid is having difficulty meeting. So my approach is no different. We got problems we need to solve. Uh, we're watching very closely to make sure that these very concerning behaviors that you have mentioned resolve as we are solving those problems. If they don't, we're not there yet. We've got some more work to do. Um, but I don't alter my approach based on the severity of a kid's behavior. Yes, I'm taking into account it's more scary, could be more dangerous. Um, it might cause us to feel a greater sense of urgency. None of that's bad. But as it relates to what I'm going to do next, I'm going to solve the problems that are causing those behaviors. Yeah, really good point. Thank you for that explanation. Yeah, absolutely. So another situation um, which we would love your view on is school refusal or as we prefer to call it, school can't. This is a hot topic in Australian schools right now and requires a far more nuanced approach than simply saying that parents need to apply tough love to get their kids to school. We've heard you say that when children wake up knowing they have 20 to 30 expectations they can't meet, it's no wonder they don't want to get out of bed. So what is your advice for families who are in this situation right now? Uh, school refuse is a tough one. It is an unsolved problem. It is still a kid who's having difficulty meeting a particular expectation. It is a kid who's having difficulty going to school, which is what our expectation is. Um, and there's a good reason that the kid is having difficulty going to school. And I can promise you that whatever that reason is, tough love is not going to address. So, you know, it's so easy to say tough love. It's so easy. This is true in world affairs as well, but we'll stick to kids. It's so easy to push for a more muscular approach to something that isn't going well. So easy. Very counterproductive. Um, but more importantly, once we find out what's making it hard for a kid to go to school. And that's the key, right? You're only going to get that information from the kid. If all we're doing is focusing on what we might call school refusal, here comes the big word, behavior, then tough love is going to make perfect sense. Rewards are going to make perfect sense. Punishment's going to make perfect sense. And in the midst of doing all of that, we still have absolutely no idea what's making it hard for the kid to go to school in the first place. And if we don't know what's making it hard for the kid to go to the school in the first place, it's not going to get addressed. And it's certainly not going to get addressed through tough love or a more muscular approach to school refusal. 
Absolutely. Thank you. <laughs> I hope I hope that people who have used that approach are tuning into that because mm. we do want to shift that perspective. And, um, you know, you talk about curiosity, empathy, and actually problem solving collaboratively, collaboratively actually with the student. Like what's, we might make a lot of assumptions about what the problems are, but it's important to make those connections with your child as well or your student to see what's getting in the way or what those issues might be. You know, there are a lot of, <laughs> we were just talking to a reporter about this today. She's doing a story if I remember correctly, on school suspension. Uh, another punitive exclusionary disciplinary action that is a response to behavior. And she was pointing out that what kids get suspended for most often is what she called willful noncompliance, right? She said, what do you think of that? I said, uh, first of all, the, wor the word willful is a little loaded. Secondly, simply calling it willful noncompliance completely eliminates the focus on the context in which this so-called willful non-compliance is occurring. Uh, there's an unsolved problem there, and there's an expectation a kid is having difficulty meeting, and there's probably adults who are pushing the kid harder to meet that expectation. That's the context. That should actually be our focal point. But many folks only focus on what comes after the kid is having difficulty meeting the expectation, what this reporter was calling willful noncompliance, and then on what happens after the kid is willfully noncompliant, in this case, a suspension. And the point that I made is the point that I just made to you all, a suspension. If this kid's having difficulty reading a particular passage in class, and that's and they're getting pushed hard to read it, and they're not able to read it, and then they become willfully non-compliant, and then they get suspended. Well, there's the sequence of events. If you're focused on the later part of that sequence of events, you've got it all wrong. If you're focused on the early part of that sequence of events, you've got it all right. And that is, the kid's having difficulty completing the reading assignment. Let's solve that and then see if the kid is still willfully non-compliant. I'm going to put my money on problem solving, not a suspension. Absolutely. <laughs> We're all on board on that. And actually, that leads us into the next question, because we know we have an amazing community of educators watching this who are genuinely trying to change their classrooms, but who are bound by an inflexible system that largely adheres to these old methods of behaviour management. And we know you often advocate for individual schools to pilot the CPS model as a way of encouraging systemic change. But we're curious today, um, we would love to put the power directly into the hands of our teachers. What advice do you have for teachers who want to introduce the CPS model or other neuroaffirming trauma-informed approaches towards behaviour into their classroom? And how can we support them to bring about this change from the ground up? Uh, my usual advice is to tell them to start a book study. Start a book study. And I've got the perfect book for a book study, as you might imagine. Well, you know, and that, yeah. by the way, me, me recommending a book study is not me being self-serving. It's just me knowing that that's a very good way to get the ball rolling. Because you don't have to be alone. You can build this from the ground up. Um, the book I would recommend is Lost at School. Uh, full disclosure, that happens to be a book that I wrote. Um, but once again, that's not about book sales. That's just about that being a very good way to get the ball rolling, to prompt discussions in schools that very badly need to be had, mm -hmm. that help people examine their lenses. I would say that Lost at School is really good at helping people question their assumptions, question their beliefs, and then question their practices. There's all kinds of people in that book that people will find to be familiar, familiar characters in their school as well. Um, I would start a book study and I would invite the headmaster or principal or assistant headmaster or assistant principal to be a part of that book study so that we have some decision makers involved there as well. Take this on as a building. Schools should be about constant improvement. Schools should be 
about being open-minded to change and self-examination and are there things we could be doing better? Um, they are often that way about academics. Why there is so much reluctance on behavior is beyond me, especially since I know that a very high percentage of behavior problems that occur in a school can be traced back in one way or another to academics anyways. So I don't have as, as easy a time as many people do separating behavior from academics. I think they go hand in glove. If you are open-minded to changing things for the better on academics, finding new ways of teaching things, finding new ways of engaging kids, you should also be open-minded to new ways of helping kids, and especially the ones that we've been losing all along. Yeah, and our community, we're, especially the Yellow Ladybugs community, we're known as the lost girls who are so lost in the system. So that ties in beautifully to that book and we definitely recommend it and we'll put a link to the book um, as part of this. And we're also releasing our own book, um, which is um, autistic-led called uh, <laughs> How to Support Autistic um, Girls and Gender Diverse Students at School. So maybe after that book, you can add in our book <laughs> to your reading list <laughs> um, for the student, for the teachers listening at home. Yes. So we'll mm. jump into the next question. Yeah. Um, so we know you've spoken a lot about changing the lens on behaviour um, as, a, as a personal journey. For example, you yourself were trained in behaviourism originally. So this lens shift is where we know we can make the most impact and we really want to help people move forwards with their approach towards behaviour and to evolve their thinking. And after all, when we know better, we do better. So what is your advice to parents, educators or even health professionals who are still stuck? How do we own our mistakes and how do we move from rupture to repair? Uh, um... Big question. <laughs> Well, I think that my answer is no different than it would be in a school. As parents, hopefully we are open to new ways of doing things. I haven't come across any parents who didn't want to be the best parent they could be. I haven't come across any educators who didn't want to be the best educator they could be. I've come across a lot of frustrated parents and a lot of frustrated educators mm -hmm. And what were they frustrated about? What they were doing now wasn't working. Now, there's two approaches to what you're doing now isn't working. You can do more of it in hopes that it might someday work, or you can take a look at what you're doing, um, access information that might help you move in another direction. Um, that depends a little bit on how open-minded people are. It depends a little bit on the resources that are available to them. Um, it depends a little bit on their savvy in finding resources if they don't find them immediately. So I think it's a, I think it's complicated, um, but I don't think that the answer is any different than it would be with a school. If things are not going well with you and your kid, um, start trying to figure out why. Start reading books that might help you and um, be willing to acknowledge that what you're doing now isn't working. It may have even, quote unquote, worked for one of your kids, but it isn't working for this one. No reason to believe that what worked for one kid is going to work for the other. Actually, no reason to believe that what you think worked for you when you were a kid is going to work for your kids now. Um, I think the main ingredient here is being open-minded and being willing to try on new ideas for size. Absolutely. Yeah. Thank Beautiful you. Beautiful advice. <laughs> and um, we're going to finish off today and ask you one question. Um, if there's anything you want to say to our young ladybugs listening at home, the collaborative part of your model is so important and it gives our children voice and agency. And we know you believe this is so important to involve our children in the process and to do so from a place of curiosity and empathy, which we love. So what's your message to any young people who are watching today? Ask the kid. Listen yeah. to the kid. So many meetings I sit in, including numerous this week and last, where the adults are getting together to talk about the kid, talking about everything that's going wrong. And at no point have they asked the kid what's getting in their way. Ask the kid. Listen to the kid. 
engage the kid in the process of solving the problems that are affecting their lives. For me, that's the definition of accountability. For many, many people, accountability means adult-imposed consequences. Add more pain. First of all, I don't even think that's accountability. You want to you help a kid be accountable, engage them in the process of solving the problems that are affecting their lives. Give them voice. Give them agency. Ask the kid. Listen to the kid. Engage the kid. Otherwise, you still won't have the slightest idea what's getting in the kid's way. Such a beautiful point. And we hear from adults who are now gone through this approach, the trauma that it's had on them when they've not had an opportunity to have their voice and agency. So the impact and the cost is huge. Even if you think in the moment you might be getting somewhere, at what cost um, to them? So that is just such an incredibly powerful perspective. Yeah. Um, we are so grateful for your time today and thank you so much. Hopefully we can get this message spread out to as many people as possible through this conference and beyond. And, yeah, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for listening to Episode 3 of our podcast series, Supporting Autistic Girls and Gender Diverse Students at School and Beyond. Please be sure to check out the resources attached to the podcast for more information. And if you found this content useful, please share it with your community. In our next episode, we'll be looking at supporting parents and carers of autistic young people with three amazing mums who will share both their professional and lived experience. We'll be joined by Yao Clark, Danielle Wilson and Joanne Hatchard. We look forward to you joining us then.